to discuss the so-called flying saucer. The film and the creature are authentic. The first pictures ever taken of a Sasquatch. They got nearly up to this UFO, but it was close enough to see some creatures or things that they didn't look like human beings down there. He first asked me what I was called, and uh, he asked me, he said, but why are you fighting? He said, don't be fighting, we wish you no harm. Hello, everyone, and welcome to a special edition of The Strange Dispatch. I'm Andrew Jewell, host of this podcast, and I'm coming to you on a special day. Well, a special night, rather. The long night. It's the beginning of Yule, and of course, the winter solstice, the longest night of the year. That's right. Whether you like it or not, midwinter is here. Since Halloween, the darkness has slowly been creeping into our days, nearly unnoticed, and her time has finally come. With the long night, we officially usher in the cold winter season. But don't fret. Though we're shrouded in darkness tonight, midwinter doesn't come without hope. Because, of course, the days begin to get longer once the longest night has passed. The arrival of the solstice heralds the beginning of the lighter time of year. So congratulations if you've made it this far. You're just one cold, dark night away from the sun making its return. Let's hope that you've sufficiently prepared for the winter ahead, because while the light may start to return tomorrow, there is still plenty of struggle to come. This is why the solstice has been celebrated for centuries, if not millennia, by nearly every civilization. It is the mark of winter, and one last time to celebrate with your friends, to feast while there is still food to feast upon, and to hope that once the winter season has passed, a bright new year lies ahead of everyone. But let's not get ahead of ourselves. There's still plenty of darkness ahead of us this night. There are still fires to be lit and stories to be told, and that's what I'm here to do tonight. In a long tradition of telling ghost stories around this time of year, I thought I'd send out one final dispatch before the year's end. So grab some drink and settle down. I have a couple stories to entertain you during the darkness that the winter solstice has brought. Hopefully there'll be a welcome distraction for you as you wait for the Yule cats to return to their dens and, and for Odin to lead the wild hunt past your house, hopefully without reaching down to snatch you up and deliver you to the underworld. Enjoy these tales, but watch out for the ghosts and goblins that may be lurking while you're preoccupied. Who better to tell our first story than the master of Christmas ghost stories, Charles Dickens? First published in 1836, this is called The Story of the Goblins Who Stole a Sexton. In an old abbey town down in this part of the country, a long, long while ago, so long that the story must be a true one because our great-grandfathers implicitly believed it, there officiated a sexton and gravedigger in the churchyard, one Gabriel Grubb. It by no means follows that because a man is a sexton and constantly surrounded by emblems of mortality, therefore he should be a morose and melancholy man. Your undertakers are the merriest fellows in the world, and I once had the honor of being on intimate terms with a mute, who in private life and off-duty was as comical and jocose a little fellow as ever chirped out a devil-may-care song without a hitch in his memory, or drained a good stiff glass of grog without stopping for a breath. 
But notwithstanding these precedents to the contrary, Gabriel Grubb was an ill-conditioned, cross-grained, surly fellow, a morose and lonely man who consorted with no one but himself in an old wicker bottle which fitted deep into his large waistcoat pocket, and who eyed each merry face as it passed him by with such a deep scowl of malice and ill-humor as it was difficult to meet without feeling something the worse for A little before twilight one Christmas Eve, Gabriel shouldered his spade, lighted his lantern, and betook himself towards the old churchyard, for he had got a grave to finish by next morning, and feeling very low, he thought it might raise his spirits, perhaps, if he went on with his work at once. As he wended his way up the ancient street, he saw the cheerful light of the blazing fires gleam through the old casements, and heard the loud laugh and cheerful shouts of those who were assembled around them. He marked the bustling preparations for next day's good cheer, and smelt the numerous savory odors consequent thereupon as they steamed up from the kitchen windows and clouds. All this was gall and wormwood to the heart of Gabriel Grubb, as groups of children bounded out of the houses, tripped across the road, and were met, before they could knock at the opposite door, by half a dozen curly-headed little rascals who crowded round them as they flocked upstairs to spend the evening in their Christmas games. Gabriel smiled grimly and clutched the handle of his spade with a firmer grasp as he thought of measles, scarlet fever, thrush, whooping cough, and a good many other sources of consolation beside. In this happy frame of mind, Gabriel strode along, returning a short, sullen growl to the good-humored greetings of such his neighbors as now and then passed him, until he turned into the dark lane which led to the churchyard. Now, Gabriel had been looking forward to reaching this dark lane because it was, generally speaking, a nice, gloomy, mournful place into which the townspeople did not much care to go except in broad daylight and when the sun was shining. Consequently, he was not a little indignant to hear a young urchin roaring out with some jolly song about a Merry Christmas in this very sanctuary which had been called Coffin Lane ever since the days of the old abbey and the time of the shaven-headed monks. As Gabriel walked on and the voice drew nearer, he found it proceeded from a small boy who was hurrying along to join one of the little parties in the old street, and who, partly to keep himself company, partly to prepare himself for the occasion, was shouting out the song at the highest pitch of his lungs. So Gabriel waited till the boy came up and then dodged him into a corner and wrapped him over the head with his lantern five or six times just to teach him to modulate his voice. And as the boy hurried away with his hand to his head, singing quite a different sort of tune, Gabriel Grubb chuckled very heartily to himself and entered the churchyard, locking the gate behind him. He took off his coat, set down his lantern, and getting into the unfinished grave, worked at it for an hour or so with right goodwill. But the earth was hardened with frost, and it was no very easy matter to break it up and shovel it out, and although there was a moon, it was a very young one and shed little light upon the grave, which was in the shadow of the church. At any other time, these obstacles would have made Gabriel Glove very moody and miserable, but he was so well pleased with having stopped the small boy's singing that he took little heed of the scanty progress he made and looked down into the grave when he had finished work for the night with grim satisfaction, murmuring as he gathered up his things. Brave lodgings for one, brave lodgings for one, a few feet of cold earth when life is done. Stone at the head, stone at the feet, a rich juicy meal for the worms to eat. Rank grass overhead and damp clay all around, brave lodgings for one decent holy ground. Ho ho, laughed Gabriel Grubb as he sat himself down on a flat tombstone, which was a favorite resting place of his, and drew forth his wicker bottle. A coffin at Christmas, a Christmas box. Ho ho ho. Ho ho ho, repeated a voice which sounded close behind him. Gabriel paused in some alarm in the act of raising the wicker bottle to his lips and looked round. The bottom of the oldest grave about him was no more still and quiet than the churchyard in the pale moonlight. The cold frost glistened on the tombstones and sparkled like rows of gems among the stone carvings of the old church. 
The snow laid hard and crisp upon the ground and spread over the thickly strewn mounds of earth, so white and smooth a cover that it seemed as if the corpses lay there, hidden only by their winding sheets. Not the faintest rustle broke the profound tranquility of the solemn scene. Sound itself appeared to be frozen up. All was so cold and still. It was the echoes, said Gabriel Grubb, raising the bottle to his lip again. It was not, said a deep voice. Gabriel started up and stood rooted to the spot with astonishment and terror, for his eyes rested on a form which made his blood run cold. Seated on an upright tombstone close to him was a strange, unearthly figure whom Gabriel felt at once was no being of this world. His long, fantastic legs, which might have reached the ground, were cocked up and crossed after a quaint, fantastic fashion. His sinewy arms were bare and his hands rested on his knees. On his short roan body he wore a close covering, ornamented with small slashes, and a short cloak dangled at his back. The collar was cut into curious peaks which served the goblin in lieu of a ruff or neckerchief, and his shoes curled up at the toes into long points. On his head he wore a broad-rimmed sugar-loaf hat garnished with a single feather. The hat was covered with the white frost, and the goblin looked as if he had sat on the same tombstone very comfortably for two or three hundred years. He was sitting perfectly still, his tongue out, and he was grinning at Gabriel Grubb with such a grin as only a goblin could call up. It was not the echoes, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb was paralyzed and could make no reply. What do you do here on Christmas Eve, said the goblin sternly. I I came to dig a grave, sir, stammered Gabriel Grubb. What man wanders among graves and churchyards on such a night as this, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb, screamed a wild chorus of voices that seemed to fill the churchyard. Gabriel looked fearfully round, but nothing was to be seen. "'What have you got in that bottle?' said the goblin. "'Holland, sir,' replied the sexton, trembling more than ever, for he had bought it at the smugglers, and he thought perhaps his questioner might be in the excise department of the goblins. "'Who drinks Holland's alone and in a churchyard on such a night as this?' said the goblins. "'Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb,' exclaimed the wild voices again. The goblin leered maliciously at the terrified sexton, and then, raising his voice, exclaimed, And who, then, is our fair and lawful prize? To this inquiry, the invisible chorus replied in a strain that sounded like the voices of many choristers singing to the mighty swell of the old church organ, a strain that seemed borne to the sexton's ears upon a gentle wind, and to die away as a soft breath passed onward, but the burden of the reply was still the same. Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb, the goblin grinned a broader grin than before, as he said, Well, Gabriel, what do you say to this? The sexton gasped for breath. What do you think of this, Gabriel, said the goblin, kicking up his feet into the air on either side of the tombstone, and looking at the turned-up points with as much complacency as if he had been contemplating the most fashionable pair of Wellingtons in all Bond Street. It's, it's very curious, sir, replied the sexton, half-dead with fright. Very curious and very pretty, but I think I'll go back and finish my work, sir, if you please. Work, said the goblin. What work? The grave, sir. Making the grave, stammered the sexton. Oh, the grave, eh, said the goblin. Who makes graves at a time when all other men are merry and takes pleasure in it? Again, the mysterious voices replied, Gabriel Grubb, Gabriel Grubb. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin, thrusting his tongue further into his cheek than ever, and a most astonishing tongue it was. I'm afraid my friends want you, Gabriel, said the goblin. 
Under favor, sir, replied the horror-struck sexton. I don't think they can, sir. They don't know me, sir. I don't think the gentlemen have ever seen me, sir. Oh, yes, they have, replied the goblin. We know the man with the sulky face and the grim scowl that came down the street tonight, throwing his evil looks at children and grasping for his burying spade the tighter. We know the man who struck the boy in the envious malice of his heart because the boy could be merry and he could not. We know him. We know him. Here the goblin gave a loud, shrill laugh, and the echoes returned twentyfold, and throwing his legs up in the air, he stood on his head, or rather upon the point of his sugarloaf hat, on the narrow edge of the tombstone, from whence he threw a somersault with extraordinary agility right to the sexton's feet, at which he planted himself in the attitude in which tailors generally sit upon the shop board. "'I am afraid I must leave you, sir,' said the sexton, making an effort to move. Leave us, said the goblin. Gabriel Grubb going to leave us? Ho, ho, ho. As the goblin laughed, the sexton observed for one instant a brilliant illumination within the windows of the church, as if the whole building were lighted up. It disappeared, the organ pealed forth a lively air, and whole troops of goblins, the very counterpart of the first one, poured into the churchyard and began playing at leapfrog with the tombstones, never stopping for an instant to take breath but overing the highest among them, one after the other, with the most marvelous dexterity. The first goblin was a most astonishing leaper, and none of the others could come near him. Even in the extremity of his terror, the sexton could not help observing that while his friends were content to leap over common-sized gravestones, the first one took the family vaults, iron railings, and all, with as much ease as he had seen many do with street posts. At last the game reached to a most exciting pitch. The organ played quicker and quicker, and the goblins leaped faster and faster, coiling themselves up, rolling head over heels upon the ground, and bounding over the tombstones like footballs. The sexton's brain whirled round with the rapidity of the motion he beheld as his legs reeled beneath him. The spirits flew before his eyes when the goblin king suddenly, darting towards him, laid his hand upon his collar and sank with him through the earth. When Gabriel Grubb had time to fetch his breath, which the rapidity of his descent had for the moment taken away, he found himself in what appeared to be a large cavern surrounded on all sides by crowds of goblins, ugly and grim. In the center of the room, on an elevated seat, was stationed his friend of the churchyard, and close beside him stood Gabriel Grubb himself without the power of motion. "'Cold tonight,' said the king of the goblins. "'Very cold. A glass of something warm here.' At this command, half a dozen officious goblins, with perpetual smiles upon their faces, hastily disappeared and presently returned with a goblet of liquid fire which they presented to their king. Ah, said the goblin, whose cheeks and throat were quite transparent as he tossed down the flame, this warms one indeed. Bring a bumper of the same for Mr. Grubb. It was in vain for the unfortunate sexton to protest that he was not in the habit of taking anything warm at night, for one of the goblins held him while another poured the blazing liquid down his throat, and the whole assembly screeched with laughter as he coughed and choked and wiped away the tears which gushed plentiful from his eyes after swallowing the burning draught. And now, said the king, fantastically poking the taper corner of his sugarloaf hat into the sexton's eye, and thereby occasioning him in the most exquisite pain, and now... Show the man of misery and gloom a few pictures from our own great storehouse. As the goblin said this, a thick cloud which obscured the further end of the cavern rolled gradually away and disclosed, apparently at a great distance, a small and scantily furnished but neat and clean apartment. 
A crowd of little children were gathered around a bright fire clinging to their mother's gown and gambling round her chair. The mother occasionally rose and drew aside the window curtain as if to look for some expected object. A frugal meal was ready spread upon the table, and an elbow chair was placed near the fire. A knock was heard at the door, and the mother opened it, and the children crowded around her and clapped their hands for joy as their father entered. He was wet and weary and shook the snow from his garments as the children crowded around him, and seizing his cloak, hat, stick, and gloves with busy zeal, ran with him from the room. Then as he sat down to his meal before the fire, the children climbed about his knee, and the mother sat by his side, and all seemed happiness and comfort. But a change came upon the view almost imperceptibly. The scene was altered to a small bedroom where the fairest and youngest child lay dying. The rose had fled from his cheeks and the light from his eye, and even as the sexton looked upon him with an interest he'd never felt or known before, he died. His young brothers and sisters crowded around his little room and seized his tiny hand, so cold and heavy. But they shrunk back from its touch and looked with awe in his infant face, for calm and tranquil as it was, and sleeping in rest and peace as the beautiful child seemed to be, they saw that he was dead, and they knew he was an angel looking down upon and blessing them from a bright and happy heaven. Again the light cloud passed from the picture, and again the subject changed. The father and mother were old and helpless now, and the number of those about them was diminished more than half, but content and cheerfulness sat on every face and beamed in every eye as they crowded round the fireside and told and listened to old stories of earlier and bygone days. Slowly and peacefully the father sank into the grave, and soon after the sharer of all his cares and troubles followed him to a place of rest and peace. The few who yet survived them knelt by their tomb and watered the green turf which covered it with their tears, then rose and turned away sadly and mournfully, but not with bitter cries or despairing laminations, for they knew they should one day meet again, and once more they mixed with the busy world and their content and cheerfulness were restored. The clouds settled upon the picture and concealed it from the sexton's view. What do you think of that? said the goblin, turning his large face towards Gabriel Grubb. Gabriel murmured out something about it being very pretty and looked somewhat ashamed as the goblin bent his fiery eyes upon him. "'You, a miserable man,' said the goblin in a tone of excessive contempt. "'You!' He appeared disposed to add more, but indignation choked his utterance, so he lifted one of his very pliable legs and, flourishing it above his head a little to ensure his aid, administered a good sound kick to Gabriel Grubb. Immediately afterwards, all the goblins in waiting crowded round the wretched sexton and kicked him without mercy, according to the established and invariable custom of courtiers upon earth, who kick whom royalty kicks and hug who royalty hugs. "'Show him some more,' said the king of the goblins. At these words, the cloud was again dispelled, and a rich and beautiful landscape was disclosed to the view. There is just such another to this day within half a mile of the old abbey town. The sun shone from out the clear blue sky, the water sparkled beneath its rays, and the trees looked greener, and the flowers more gay beneath its cheering influence. The water rippled on with a pleasant sound, the trees rustled in the light wind that murmured among their leaves, the birds sang upon the boughs, and the lark caroled on high for welcome to the morning. Yes, it was morning, yes, it was morning, the bright balmy morning of summer. The minutest leaf, the smallest blade of grass, was instinct with life. The ant crept forth to her daily toil, the butterfly fluttered and basked in the warm rays of the sun. Myriads of insects spread their transparent wings and reveled in their brief but happy existence. Man walked forth, elated with the scene, and all was brightness and splendor. You, 
a miserable man, said the king of the goblins in a more contemptuous tone than before. And again, the king of the goblins gave his leg a flourish. Again, it descended on the shoulders of the sexton. And again, the attendant goblins imitated the example of their chief. Many a time the cloud went and came, and many a lesson it taught to Gabriel Grubb, who, although his shoulders smarted with pain from the frequent applications of the goblins' feet thereunto, looked on with an interest which nothing could diminish. He saw that men who worked hard and earned their scanty bread with lives of labor were cheerful and happy, and that to the most ignorant the sweet face of nature was a never-failing source of cheerfulness and joy. He saw those who had been delicately nurtured and tenderly brought up, cheerful under privations and superior to suffering that would have crushed many a rougher grain, because they bore materials of happiness, contentment, and peace. He saw that women, the tenderest and most fragile of all God's creatures, were the oftenest superior to sorrow, adversity, and distress, and he, and he saw that it was because they bore in their own hearts an inexhaustible wellspring of affection and devotedness. Above all, he saw that men like himself, who snarled at the mirth and cheerfulness of others, were the foulest weeds on the fair surface of the earth, and setting all the good of all the world against the evil, he came to the conclusion that it was a very decent and respectable sort of world after all. No sooner had he formed it than the cloud which had closed over the last picture seemed to settle on his senses and lull him to repose. One by one the goblins faded from his sight, and as the last one disappeared, he sunk to sleep. The day had broken when Gabriel Grubb awoke and found himself lying at full length on the flat gravestone in the churchyard with the wicker bottle lying empty by his side and his coat, spade, and lantern all well whitened by last night's frost scattered on the ground. The stone on which he had first seen the goblin seated stood bolt upright before him and the grave at which he had worked the night before was not far off. At first he began to doubt the reality of his adventures, but the acute pain in his shoulders when he attempted to rise assured him that the kicking of the goblins was certainly not ideal. He was staggered again by observing no traces of footsteps in the snow on which the goblins had played leapfrog with the gravestones, but he speedily accounted for his circumstance when he remembered that being spirits they would leave no visible impression behind them. So Gabriel Grubb got to his feet as well as he could for the pain in his back, and brushing the frost off his coat, put it on, and turned his face towards the town. But he was an altered man, and he could not bear the thought of returning to a place where his repentance would be scoffed at and his reformation disbelieved. He hesitated for a few moments, and then turned away to wander where he might and seek his bread elsewhere. The lantern, the spade, and the wicker bottle were found that day in the churchyard. There were a great many speculations about the sexton's fate at first, but it was speedily determined that he had been carried away by the goblins, and there were not wanting some very credible witnesses who had distinctly seen him whisked through the air on the back of a chestnut horse, blind of one eye, with the hindquarters of a lion and the tail of a bear. At length all this was devoutly believed, and the new sexton used to exhibit for the curious a good-sized piece of the church weathercock which had been accidentally kicked off by the aforesaid horse in his aerial flight and picked up by himself in the churchyard a year or two afterwards. Unfortunately, these stories were somewhat disturbed by the unlooked-for reappearance of Gabriel Grubb himself some ten years afterwards, a ragged, contented, rheumatic old man. He told this story to the clergyman, and also to the major, and in course of time it began to be received as a matter of history, in which form it has continued down to this very day. The believers in the weather cocktail, having misplaced their confidence once, were not easily prevailed upon to part with it again, 
So they looked as wise as they could, shrugged their shoulders, touched their foreheads, and murmured something about Gabriel Grubbs having drunk all the Hollands and then fallen asleep on the flat tombstone. And they affected to explain what he supposed he had witnessed in the goblin's cavern by saying he had seen the world and grown wiser. But this opinion, which by no means was a popular one at any time, gradually died off. And be the matter how it may, as Gabriel Grubb was afflicted with rheumatism to the end of his days, this story has at least one moral if it teach no better one. And that is, that if a man turns sulky and drinks by himself at Christmas time, he may make up his mind to be not a bit the better for it. Let the spirits be ever so good, or let them be even as many degrees beyond proof as those which Gabriel Grubb saw in the Goblin's Cavern. The next story I'm going to tell for you tonight is called Christmas Meeting by Rosemary Timperley. I have never spent Christmas alone before. It gives me an uncanny feeling sitting alone in my furnished room with my head full of ghosts and the room full of voices of the past. It's a drowning feeling, all the Christmases of the past coming back in a mad jumble, the childish Christmas with a house full of relations, a tree in the window, sixpences in the pudding, and the delicious, crinkly stocking in the dark morning. The adolescent Christmas, with mother and father, the war and the bitter cold, and the letters from abroad. The first really grown-up Christmas, with a lover, the snow, the enchantment, red wine and kisses, and the walk in the dark before midnight, with the ground so white and the stars diamond bright in a black sky so many Christmases through the years. And now, the first Christmas alone. But not quite loneliness, a feeling of companionship with all the other people who are spending Christmas alone, millions of them, past and present. A feeling that, if I close my eyes, there will be no past, no future, only an endless present, which is time, because it is all we ever have. Yes, however cynical you are, However irreligious, it makes you feel queer to be alone at Christmas time. So I'm absurdly relieved when the young man walks in. There's nothing romantic about it. I'm a woman of nearly 50, a spinster schoolman with grim dark hair and myopic eyes that once were beautiful. And he's a kid of 20, rather unconventionally dressed with a flowing wine-colored tie and black velvet jacket and brown curls which could do with a taste of the barber's scissors. The effeminacy of his dress is belied by his featured narrow, piercing blue eyes, and arrogant, jutting nose and chin. Not that he looks strong. The skin is fine drawn over the prominent features, and he is very white. He bursts in without knocking, then pauses and says, I'm so sorry. I thought this was my room. He begins to go out, but then hesitates and says, "Are, Are you alone? Yes. It's queer being alone at Christmas, isn't it? May I stay and talk? I'd be glad if you would. 
He comes right in and sits down by the fire. I hope you don't think I came here on purpose. I really did think it was my room, he explains. I'm glad you made the mistake, but you're a very young person to be alone at Christmas time. I wouldn't go back to the country to my family. It would hold up work. I'm a writer. I see. I can't help smiling a little. That explains his rather unusual dress. And he takes himself so seriously, this young man. Of course, you mustn't waste a precious moment of writing, I say with a twinkle. No, not a moment. That's what my family won't see. They don't appreciate the urgency. Families are never appreciative of the artistic nature. No, they aren't, he agrees seriously. What are you writing? Poetry and a diary combined. It's called My Poems and I by Francis Randall. That's my name. My family said there's no point in writing that I'm too young, but I don't feel young. Sometimes I feel like an old man with too much to do before he dies, revolving faster and faster on the wheel of creativeness. Yes, yes, exactly. You understand. You must read my work sometime. Please read my work. Read my work. A note of desperation in his voice, a look of fear in his eyes makes me say, we're both getting too solemn for Christmas Day. I'm going to make you some coffee, and I have a plum cake. I move about, clattering cups, spooning coffee into my percolator, but I must have offended him, for when I look round, I find he has left me. I am, I am absurdly disappointed. I finish making coffee, however, then turn to the bookshelf in the room. It is piled high with volumes for which the landlady has apologized profusely. Hope you don't mind the books, miss, but my husband won't let me part with them, and there's nowhere else to put them. We charge a bit less for the room for that reason. I don't mind, I said. Books are good friends. But these aren't very friendly-looking books. I take one at random. Or does some strange fate guide my hand? Sipping my coffee, inhaling my cigarette smoke, I begin to read the battered little book, published, I see, in spring 1852. It's mainly poetry, immature stuff, but vivid. Then there's a kind of diary, more realistic, less affected. Out of curiosity, to see if there are any amusing comparisons, I turn to the entry for Christmas Day, 1851. I read, My first Christmas Day alone. I had rather an odd experience. When I went back to my lodgings after a walk, there was a middle-aged woman in my room. I thought at first I'd walked into the wrong room, but this was not so. And later, after a pleasant talk, she disappeared. I suppose she was a ghost, but I wasn't frightened. I liked her. But I do not feel well tonight, not at all well. I have never felt ill at Christmas before. A publisher's note followed the last entry. Francis Randell died from a sudden heart attack on the night of Christmas Day, 1851. The woman mentioned in this final entry in his diary was the last person to see him alive. In spite of requests for her to come forward, she never did so. Her identity remains a mystery. Thank you so much for listening to these stories, everyone. This is a truly wonderful tradition for this time of year. This is something that I love to see younger generations embracing. I think that everyone should take time out of their holiday season to sit down with the ones that they love and to scare the shit out of them 
with the best and weirdest ghost stories they can find. So thank you so much for spending your solstice with me. It's been a pleasure to tell these stories for you. There are many, many more stories out there to be told about this time of year. Look them up. Don't be afraid. I will see you all again very soon. I hope you have a great holiday season and a very happy new year. Stay safe. Stay strange. Thank you.